A data warehouse provides low latency access to large volumes of data. A data warehouse is a crucial piece of infrastructure for a large company because it can be used to answer complex questions involving a large number of data points. But a data warehouse usually cannot hold all of a company's data at any given time. Users need to move a subset of the data into the data warehouse by reading large files from a data lake on disk and putting that data into the data warehouse. The process of moving data from one place into another is broken down into three sequential steps, often called ETL, or Extract Transform Load. It also might be called ELT, Extract Load Transform. In ETL, the data is extracted from a source such as a data lake, transformed into a schema that is customized for the data warehouse application, and then loaded into the data warehouse. In ELT, the last two steps are reversed, because modern systems can often leave the necessary schema transformation, or other kinds of transformations, until after the data has been loaded into the data warehouse. And in today's show, we talk about the ETL versus ELT acronyms. Matthew Scullion is the CEO of Matillion, a company that specializes in building tools for data transformations. Matthew joins the show to talk about the problem of data transformation and how that problem has evolved over the nine years since he started Matillion. If you enjoy this show, you can find all of our past episodes about data infrastructure by going to softwaredaily.com. You can also download our mobile apps in the iOS or Android app stores. You can search for technologies or topics and find all of our podcast episodes. You can listen to them on our website or in our apps. And if there's a subject that you want to hear covered, you can leave a comment on an episode or you can send us a tweet at software underscore daily and we'll take a look and this is how we find some of our new subjects to cover. Today's show is brought to you by Heroku, which has been my most frequently used cloud provider since I started as a software engineer. Heroku allows me to build and deploy my apps quickly, without friction. Heroku's focus has always been on the developer experience, and working with data on the platform brings that same great experience. Heroku knows that you need fast access to data and insights so you can bring the most compelling and relevant apps to market. Heroku's fully managed Postgres, Redis, and Kafka data services help you get started faster and be more productive, whether you're working with Postgres or Apache Kafka or Redis. And that means you can focus on building data-driven apps, not data infrastructure. Visit softwareengineeringdaily.com slash Heroku data to learn about Heroku's managed data services. We build our own site, softwaredaily.com, on Heroku, and as we scale, we will eventually need access to data services. I'm looking forward to taking advantage of Heroku's managed data services because I'm confident that they will be as easy to use as Heroku's core deployment and application management systems. Visit softwareengineeringdaily.com slash herokudata to find out more. And thanks to Heroku for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. Matthew Scullion, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. Pleased to be here. You started Matillion in 2011, and Matillion is based around 
at least today, helping people with their data platform. For a large company, what was a typical data platform back in 2011? Oh, yeah, great question. And so I guess it was probably just starting to transition. Certainly prior to that sort of time, for a large company, a data platform would oftentimes be a data warehouse appliance, market leader, probably Teradata. Uh, you've also got Netiza and Vertica and, and other similar data warehouse appliances. These were columnar analytical databases optimized for large volumes of data and resolving queries really quickly uh, so people could crunch their data and gain insight. They turned up on the back of a semi-truck. They cost several million dollars a piece. You know, just like an F1 team, they'd have a group of highly qualified engineers looking after them. What did the term data warehouse mean back in 2011? Yeah, it's a good question. It's something I find myself talking about a fair bit. And I think data warehouse means two different things, actually. What a lot of people mean both back then and today when they describe data warehouse is the engine on which you put the data. So in 2011, and certainly prior to that, it would have meant Teradata or Netiza appliance. The physical bit of kit back then and the engine on it, the stored and organized data, optimized and resolved queries over that data. The other reason of uh, the other meaning, I'm sorry, of data warehouse, both back then and this time today as well, is what you do with that engine. And so to me, as a data professional and a founder CEO of a company that makes tools for creating data warehouses, you know, we're not creating a tool to create a data warehouse appliance or engine or SaaS service. We're creating a tool to allow customers to put data onto one of those and then crucially get it organized, ready for analytics, to join data together, embellish it with business metrics, sort out quality and granularity, to turn siloed source data that doesn't tell the story into denormalized, organized data that adds value to the business and unlocks insight. So yeah, two different definitions of data warehouse. The engine, the physical bit of kit that you do that on, but also the finished database with data on it and organized that delivers business value. What kinds of questions was the data warehouse being used for back in 2011? Who was the end user and what kind of questions were they asking? Yeah, so I think the key difference between 2011 and today uh, to that question would be not just who they were, but how many of them there were. <laughs> and, and what I mean by that is, Data warehouses used to be expensive and a heavy lift. If your on-ramp cost is many millions of dollars, if to get hold of a data warehouse, you need to run through a, a traditional solution sales cycle with a vendor over many months, and then to physically get hold of this thing, it needs to be delivered to your on-prem data center, configured, set up, and then a project executed to get it working. You just don't do that super frequently, right? It has to be a really important use case that's well-defined and delivered over a long project. So I think where data warehouses, and therefore, I guess, to some extent, data analytics were used in large business prior to the timeframe you're talking about there, you know, through the 2000s and through the 90s, were on the most important analytical questions in a given business. How much money they're making, and where and who from, 
broken down by products and customers and sectors, that sort of thing. It's going to depend on the business, right? But it's going to be those most important questions that justify the large sunk costs in terms of dollars and time in getting to insights. That's a key difference from back then to today. Because of large sunk costs in terms of dollars and time, you really had to prioritize what you wanted to know about. What probably hasn't changed quite so much is the areas of the business that that could possibly apply to. Today, we tend to talk about data innovation, usually sitting in one of maybe three main areas. It's around understanding customer behavior better, whether that's how you market to them, how your company is monetizing customers or how you deal with them. It could be around products, understanding how products are working or improving products. And finally, it could be streamlining business processes. But in each of those cases, back in that time frame you're asking about, it would have just been in the most important, most obvious places that you needed analytical insight. If we go back in time even further, I think 2005, 2006 was around when the MapReduce paper came out. And I think, you know, two, three years after that, companies started being built to productize Hadoop, the open source MapReduce project, it Cloudera and MapR and Hortonworks. So you had companies adopting Hadoop, you had Hive. How did the open source MapReduce project, Hadoop, how did that change data warehousing together with Hive? So you're stretching me a little bit because, of course, I wasn't actually an actor in this industry at, at, at that time. Well, I guess in, in 2011, there were people using Hadoop and Hive for, for ETL, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's exactly right. So those, those products certainly came along mid-2000s. And by 2011, when I was starting to get into this, I guess really we saw at that time two camps or two theses around how to deal with data at volume. And camp one, as you as you rightly say, was that map reduce camp and Hadoop and Pig and, and, and those vendors that you mentioned that productize those products. And I think the thing that was appealing around those technologies to end users was scale, you know, ability to deal with large data volumes, particularly web scale data volumes. Those products professed and, and in many cases did successfully deal with that amount of data, which previously would have been at the minimum very expensive or possibly preventatively difficult. The other thing which I always thought was a misnomer, and I think maybe that's come to be proven out, the other thing was people liked the perceived unit economics, right? So the technology is open source, the hardware is commodity, that sounds cheap. The other camp was data warehouses and then later cloud data warehouses, Um, which were also designed and are capable of delivering analytical insight over large volumes of data. But you, on the one hand, had to pay for that. You know, certainly back in 2011, you'd been buying a client-based data warehouse, which would have been expensive, as we've already talked about. There might be a third factor in there as well, and I risk some social media backlash by saying this, maybe. (laughs) I hope not too much. But of course, with new technology, we as software people and engineers are always just interested in it, right? So it's interesting and tempting to get into because it's a new area of technology. I think the way that played out is those MapReduce technologies did do what they said on the tin insofar as they could deal with huge volumes of data, web scale volumes of data, and the unit economics on the software cost and the hardware costs were good, 
They were offset, however, by the human cost of doing that because they were complex. And so you needed highly skilled people to look after this stuff and to build it. And that talked to total cost of ownership. And it also talked to ability to innovate at pace, at the requisite pace to keep up with what the rest of the industry was doing with simpler technology, I suppose. I think if you fast forward to today, you can see how that played out. Where those map-reduced technology use cases resonated was in the really largest scale, web scale use cases where the investment in people was worth it. If you're a Netflix perhaps or some other web scale company, first of all, you can attract, retain and afford the talent and B, you need that genuinely top end capability of dealing with huge volumes of data. For everybody else, the slow time to value and high sunk costs in terms of people, I think made it uneconomic. Great answer. And throughout this time, what has the role of Oracle been in data warehousing historically? It's probably easier for me to answer that into in today's context than it was for me to look back to around 2011. And I'll tell you the honest reason for that. I wasn't thinking a whole lot about Oracle back in 2011, but I have reflected on it quite a bit since and some of the market dynamics that uh, Oracle have left us with. Today, and I think we're probably going to get on and talk about this in, in a few minutes, perhaps. And so I don't want to get too far ahead of your questions. But today, people think a lot about consuming cloud services in general that give them competitive advantage. In the data space, they think about consuming data lake and particularly cloud data warehouse technology in order to allow them to innovate with data at pace. And as I mentioned before, gain competitive advantage out of doing that. What they also think about though is is not getting locked in to a platform. And so if you think about data warehousing pre-2011 and through the 90s and 2000s, a really common pairing of technology would perhaps be something like Informatica Power Center as the data integration layer and Teradata as the data warehouse appliance. And two fantastic products, fantastic technologies from outstanding companies. Because to get into the club where you're playing with that technology would have cost you millions of dollars. Your likelihood of wanting to switch real quick off one of those was pretty low. It's not like you're going to spend a few million bucks on a Teradata appliance, a little more money on some Informatica, negotiate all that with your CFO, go through procurement, get your project live. And then a month later, Natiza released some new feature that just makes it slightly better in one particular way than Teradata. So you go back to your C-suite and say, hey, I know we've just spent all that money, Let's change because this one's now marginally faster and marginally shinier. You weren't going to do that because you had so much capital and effort sunk into whatever choice you made off the bat. Today, in the cloud world, that's much less the case. The switching cost between cloud service A and cloud service B is incredibly low. And so I think customers think a lot more carefully about making sure that they don't accidentally erase that low switching cost and tie themselves into a given technology because that would stop them being able to take advantage of this ability to switch between the best technology at a given point in time. I think that conditioning came from everybody's Oracle experience because we all built Oracle databases. We built into them, so it was difficult to move off them. 
And then respectfully to what is a very successful company uh, that many of us still rely on, it's called technology, of course. Many people came to live to regret that decision about baking themselves into Oracle so much later on in their life with them. So for me, whenever anyone asks me about Oracle, I think that's the biggest effect. It focuses people's mind on not being locked into a particular technology, particularly now there aren't large sum costs because of the cloud. As a programmer, you think in objects. With MongoDB, so does your database. MongoDB is the most popular document-based database built for modern application developers and the cloud era. Millions of developers use MongoDB to power the world's most innovative products and services, from cryptocurrency to online gaming, IoT, and more. Try MongoDB today with Atlas, the global cloud database service that runs on AWS, Azure, and Google Cloud. Configure, deploy, and connect to your database in just a few minutes. Check it out at mongodb.com slash atlas. That's mongodb.com slash atlas. Thank you to MongoDB for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. One of the reasons I wanted to start with these historical questions is I wanted to I wanted to bring us up to 2012 when Amazon Redshift was released. And Amazon Redshift is, maybe you can tell me differently, but probably the, the most popular data warehouse today. It's, it's a data warehouse that is actually named after the, I mean, the, the idea of Redshift, this is something I, I learned in the research for this episode is... The Doppler effect. Actually, well, what I read on Wikipedia, maybe this is wrong, is... The idea that Oracle's logo is red and we're shifting away from red. Ah, well, well, there you go. I mean, I'm. Uh, <laughs> I've been I mean, it's the thing is, it sounds like a very that I read that and I was like, is that true? It might not be true. Like, I might be quoting, but this might be the first example of actually reading something on Wikipedia that is very wrong because it sounds very non-Amazon to name a product after basically an in opposition to, to some other contemporary product. Well, it, later, well after launching Redshift, of course, they got pretty pokey about That's true. calling out Oracle. So, hey, maybe it was just a brilliant look into the future of what the corporate position of AWS against Oracle was going to be. I must confess, either this is very amusing because you've just embarrassed the CEO of the perhaps world's number one data integration tool built for Redshift, who's been personally hanging out with the Redshift team. (laughs) The original etymology of the name that I understood was it was simply from physics and the Doppler effect and therefore a metaphor for speed. I think the color of light changes towards red. (laughs) accelerating away from you. The nice thing about all these histories of things is, of course, unless you were there, you don't know, and therefore you can happily be revisionist about it. So let's see if after this podcast, uh, (laughs) the world picks up one or other of our explanations. Well, getting away from etymology, how did Redshift affect your business when Amazon released a cloud data warehouse in 2012? Well, that's really at the heart of the Matillion kind of founder story, as it sometimes gets called. So Matillion as a business has been around since 2011. We launched the products range for which we're now known and which we have many customers across the world using every day to innovate with data, and Matillion ETL. We launched that product range in 
October of 2015 at the AWS reInvent conference, which sometimes drives the question, what were you doing between 2011 <laughs> and 2015, right? Yeah. <laughs> and Matillion was incorporated to do something different than build ETL tools. I, prior to founding the company, had been working for some large SIs in Europe. One of the things that we did within the business I was working in before setting up Matillion was implement BI systems for people, analytics as we'd call it today. So I had a team of guys that went out implementing, it was actually IBM Cognos that we used to use back in those days. And we built a data warehouse, implement Cognos and deliver business value that way. Customers loved it, got value out of it, but it was expensive. And in another part of the team I ran in my prior company, I had a team of really great guys run by a gentleman called Ed Thompson, who was employee number one at Matillion, my co-founder and our CTO. He ran an integration team that always got to play with all the latest, greatest technology, including, relevant to this story, AWS. And we thought, hey, there's a gap in the market here for people that need more sophisticated analytics, but that either don't have the time or perhaps the IT expertise to deliver it themselves swiftly. So what we're going to do is we're going to stand up a company, we'll call it Matillion, and we're going to deliver turnkey, fully managed BI as a service. We're going to sell that in a SaaS business model. And of course, we're going to do it in the cloud. And that's what we did. So when we stood that company up in January of 2011, we started building end-to-end BI solutions for our customers It had a data warehouse layer, an ETL layer, a BI front end, and then we plowed it with some services and take a customer through in a small number of weeks to having great quality business insights driven by analytics. In 2011, as you rightly say, Redshift didn't exist, but AWS did, and we we built this business on AWS. We still used a cloud-based data warehouse of sorts. We used an open source Columnar analytical database that we kind of configured and hosted ourselves. It was a product called InfoBright. But we did have a bit of a technical policy back then. And I say bit of a because we're a small company. So this wasn't a 300 page document. It was just an approach that wherever we could, we'd avoid reinventing the wheel by consuming AWS services. As such, when AWS launched Redshift in late 2012, we immediately thought, well, gosh, we've been using an open source columnar analytical database. Here's a fully managed cloud service analytical database from AWS. Let's use that. Now, a thing we often forget when telling that story is we then chose not to because <laughs> when Redshift was launched, it was only launched on traditional disks and um, on some machine image sizes that were not super duper performance, actually. And actually, it wasn't fast enough for us. <laughs> so we didn't use it straight away. But the following summer, summer of 2013, they launched some new instance types that were underpinned by SSD disk. It was much, much faster. And so at that point, we migrated all the customers that we built over the past few years on AWS, yes, but not on Redshift, rather on this InfoBright database. We migrated all those guys across to Redshift and every incremental new project that we built out for our managed BI customers at that point, we did that on Amazon Redshift. And so at that point, how did it change our business to answer your original question? Well, it just made it a bit easier and a bit faster, I suppose, at that point. We'd been managing this open source column database ourselves, and now we had to do less of that. It was easier to scale up and down. Like any good consumer of cloud services, we were able to somewhat 
get out of the business of managing infrastructure. And then as innovations came along in Redshift, we were able to pass those on to our customers. Just one thing coming right from the depths of my memory that I remember being excited about launching back then was the ability to encrypt the data warehouse, which Redshift could do really easily. And that was valuable to these managed BI customers that we had. And so we'd sell that onto them as an option. The real change came from something perhaps less obvious, but really what built Matillion as it is today and has driven all our growth over the past few years. The real change came a couple of years later or a year or so later. We had this growing managed BI as a service business. I will say in retrospect, if anyone's thinking of setting one of these up, it was quite a tough gig, that business. <laughs> the product was great. Customers who bought it loved it. But the ideal customer to buy a fully managed BI service is like a medium-sized customer. Anyone bigger wants to do it themselves. Anyone smaller doesn't need it, can't afford it. <laughs> it turned out to be just a tough gig persuading the CFO of a like 30-year-old privately held fasteners business to buy a cloud <laughs> Yeah, right. But um, anyway, we built a business around it. We had all these customers and we were building and maintaining scores of cloud data warehouses for our customers. Actually, as a byproduct of the fact we were finding it pretty tough to sell it, we wanted to get even more efficient at building data warehouses. We'd gotten pretty good, if I'm honest with you. We kind of tried to cut all the waste out of the process. We templated it all. We had automation to make it slicker. But we got to a point where there was no more fat to trim out of the process because almost everything we were doing was ETL. It was mapping the source data from the customer's production systems, which were typically different every time, into the data warehouse, into the shape and size of fat and dimension tables required to support the customer's analysis downstream. That mapping process, that adding of you know, revenue and cost to make margin, that filtering out of the data that was wrong or was test data, all that kind of gritty stuff that you do as you're taking siloed source data from production systems and turning it into beautiful, organized, analytic-ready data. We just couldn't get faster at that. And one of the reasons was we were using a pre-cloud ETL tool. I'd probably prefer not to say which one it was, because this is a public forum and I wouldn't want to be disrespectful to that company, not least because this was a great product. I'd actually used it in my prior job. This is now a public company and this product had everything in it you needed to build data warehouses, join data together, clean it up, embellish it with metrics and participate in a sophisticated IT setting. But it was just all built for the pre-cloud world. And so it was slow and it was clunky and it was reducing our ability to innovate with data in the cloud, to put no finer point onto it. So the biggest way Redshift changed our world back then was that we were really delighted with Redshift, but we became frustrated about our ability to build data warehouses on it quickly. What that led to is in early 2014, we do what every good techie does when he's got a problem. We got onto Google and we tried to find a product that looked and smelled just like what we've been using already, but that was built for the cloud. And as it happened, no such product existed. And funny enough, 
No such product really exists today, I would argue, apart from Matillion ETL. But that's maybe a little plug, so I'll back, I'll back away from that. Um, but no such products existed. And of course, we've been using Redshift very aggressively since almost immediately after it had launched. I guess at that stage, and it was a particular point in time, most customers were either using Redshift once or twice because it was for themselves. They were an end user and they were building their own data warehouse. Or maybe there are an SI or consulting company that's building data warehouses for their customers, but they're doing that out on site with their customers. So they're doing it scattered around the country or the world. We were building lots and lots of data warehouses and managing them. And we were doing it all from one, I'll admit now, quite unglamorous room in a little village called Nutsford, about 10 miles south of Manchester, UK. And we were building up this concentrated knowledge of everything you'd really have in an ideal world if you had a tool purpose-built for Redshift or purpose-built for a cloud data warehouse. And so in 2014, when we got onto Google and found there wasn't something like what we'd been using but built for the cloud, we elected to build it ourselves. We had a very small engineering team. We're a really small company. But we spent a year building what we hoped would be all the good stuff from the prior gen, but re-architected for the way you do it in the post-cloud world. Around comes January 2015. We've got a very early version of this product ready, and we try it out on a live customer project. And it works really well. It executed jobs, you know, the job of sucking in data from a source system, transforming it into the shape and size that you need to support analytics, and getting it into the data warehouse about 100 times faster than the technology we've been using previously. That's really important at runtime, but also really important at development time. Because as you build out ETL jobs, what the typical data professional will do is they'll say, pull in data from here, join it to here, filter here. Okay, I'm just going to check it works. And they'll press run. And if that job takes 20 minutes to run, they've got to wait 20 minutes to see if their first three steps of development worked. If it does, they'll move on to the next one, add a couple more components, rinse and repeat. There's a 20-minute delay or an hour delay every time you try out what you've written, that really slows you down. These 20-minute jobs were taking 12, 13 seconds in this new tool that we created. That splashed out to much more efficiency overall in the job of building a data warehouse. It was taking less than half the time to build a data warehouse. We'd already optimized the process. I remember the numbers, actually. It used to take us about 35 days to stand up a customer. Of the 35, five days were kind of projecty stuff and training courses. 30 days was ETL. The first time we used this very early, very wet paint version of Matillion ETL, it took us about 14 days. So, you know, less than half the time. And then finally, we had this very authentic group of data professionals that had all used the Informaticas and IBM data stages and SSISs and Talens, they'd all used those products in previous jobs. It was these guys driving this new tool. They were a very cynical crowd, as m- many of us engineers are, and yet they really liked it. And so uh, with that in mind, and driven by our own pain, we'd actually created a, pr- a product purpose-built for Amazon Redshift. And because we architected it to work well in the cloud, but because we also learned from what you need in those prior gen tools, we ended up with something very compelling. Just one final thing, and I know I've been talking a long time on this question, but also AWS did us a massive favor about that time. They happened to announce, and they're not a company that shares its statistics very often, 
but they happened to announce that A, they were this extremely fast growing, once in a generation tectonic shift in the way that B2B IT was being done. And they were making a lot of noise about that, about that time. And they also happened to announce that of all the different services they had, EC2 and S3 and EBS and all these other services, Redshift was the fastest growing one. So we just happened to have built a tool that was 100 times faster, twice as productive. Our guys really liked using it. And it happened to be for the fastest growing service of one of the fastest growing technology companies ever. So that's how it changed our business. You probably do not enjoy searching for a job. Engineers don't like sacrificing their time to do phone screens, and we don't like doing whiteboard problems and working on tedious take-home projects. Everyone knows the software hiring process is not perfect, but what's the alternative? TripleByte is the alternative. TripleByte is a platform for finding a great software job faster. TripleByte works with 400-plus tech companies, including Dropbox, Adobe, Coursera, and Cruise Automation. TripleByte improves the hiring process by saving you time and fast-tracking you to final interviews. At triplebyte.com sedaily, you can start your process by taking a quiz, and after the quiz, you get interviewed by TripleByte if you pass that quiz. And if you pass that interview, you make it straight to multiple on-site interviews. And if you take a job, you get an additional $1,000 signing bonus from TripleByte because you use the link triplebyte.com slash sedaily. That $1,000 is nice, but you might be making much more since those multiple on-site interviews would put you in a great position to potentially get multiple offers and then you could figure out what your salary actually should be. TripleByte does not look at candidates' backgrounds, like resumes and where they've worked and where they went to school. TripleByte only cares about whether someone can code. So I'm a huge fan of that aspect of their model. This means that they work with lots of people from non-traditional and unusual backgrounds. To get started, just go to triplebyte.com slash sedaily and take a quiz to get started. There's very little risk, and you might find yourself in a great position getting multiple on-site interviews from just one quiz and a Triplebyte interview. Go to triplebyte.com slash sedaily to try it out. Thank you to Triplebyte. It's such a great story. The fact that you started in 2011, searched around for a product to build, found this full stack data warehouse that you built in the cloud based on open source technology, but realized that the market was not there to build a substantial business. And then AWS releases their own cloud data warehouse. You look for a way to draft off of that and you end up building this tool that slots in perfectly into the changing trends of of enterprise technology and i think engineering aside it's it's quite a good story of entrepreneurship and finding a product that works for you that allows you to build a big business but 
since we've we've spent a lot of time talking about the the basic story, I want to get into ETL today. So the ETL process, as I understand, basically you've got data in one place, you want to get it into another place, and you want to make it queryable in that other place that you're moving it to. So if we talk about the ETL process today, and particularly what it means in terms of your business at Matillion, explain what that means. Explain what the average customer is doing when we're talking about ETL. So ETL is one of those rare IT acronyms that is pretty useful in describing what it does. But it's definitely worth dwelling on because I think oftentimes, particularly today with a lot more people innovating with data and many of them doing it for the first time, fueled by the cloud, the emphasis is sometimes lost. So you described it, um, ETL just then, as I get my data out of the source system, I load it into wherever I want to do the analysis, such as Amazon Redshift, Snowflake, BigQuery, et cetera. And then I get the data organized and ready to support my queries. And that's basically true. What's interesting is where the value is and what uses the most time of the data professional, I think. So uh, first of all, let's start on the, the kind of raw bits and bytes. Let's say you're trying to do some analysis that helps you understand what's going on with your customers better. And let's say you've got customer data in SAP or NetSuite. Well, if we just start with one of those systems, SAP, if I remember right, and I'm probably getting this number massively wrong, but SAP under the hood has got, I think, 80,000 tables that support it. So even in that one system, the story that you want to analyze, how my customers are behaving, now how much money am I making from selling blue jeans in Texas to people 30 through 50 years old? The information that answers that question might all be in SAP, but it's not in one place. It's spread across lots of different places. So in ETL, the first thing we do is we get the raw data, the raw siloed data. We go and get the customer master file because that tells us who the customer is. We go and get the descriptions file because that maps a numeric code to a US state. So now we can say they're in Texas. We go and get the product master, the order headers, the order lines, uh, all these individual components that tell a little bit of the story. And we bring all those over to our ETL tool or in fact to our data warehouse. What all you've done there is moved it. You've just got the data from being buried in the production system in a place where you can start to play with it. And in the old world, that place where you started to play with it was normally on the data integration system itself, right? So it would be in flight as it went through Informatica or Talent. The way we do it today at Matillion, and you can still do it the old way, we do it ELT actually. So we extract and then load onto the data warehouse and then do the bit that I'm going to come on to, which is transformation. So recap, we've taken the data from the siloed source system. We've now got it to the place where we can do some stuff with it. To answer our question about how much money am I making from selling blue jeans in Texas to people in a particular age range, I now need to do a couple of things. I need to join those different bits of data together. And at a basic level, these are just SQL joins, right? I'm joining the order headers to the order lines, the order headers to the customer master, the customer master to the customer description. But typically in business analysis, those joins get pretty complicated pretty quick because you've got lots of different bits of data. The second thing you're basically doing is 
embellishing our metrics. So to answer the question, how much money am I making? Well, that's actually a margin question, right? A profit question. So to answer it, I need to get revenue from maybe the, the sales invoice, and I need to get cost from somewhere else in the system. Pull all that together, and then just do a tiny bit of maths to say, take the cost away from the revenue, and that gives me the margin. That gives me how much money I've made. I want to store that answer in the data warehouse so that when 100 or 1,000 or 10,000 users all go and look up the answer to how much money did we make selling blue jeans in Texas, they all get the same answer. If I give them the raw materials, they'll add that up themselves and they'll all do it different ways and get different answers. So I want to put the answer in the data warehouse and I do that at the ETL layer. Now, inevitably, you also want to sort out quality. There'll be different bits of data from different parts of the company in that, for instance, SAP system. There'll be some old data that you know is a bit rubbish. There'll be some descriptions that have changed over time that you need to sort out. So there's quite a lot of cleaning up, joining together, embellishment, and granularity changes of the data that you need to go from what's buried in SAP to what's gonna support your beautiful Tableau or Looker dashboards downstream. That example was from one system. In reality, we today, to get that picture of how our customer's behaving, load data from multiple systems. We're probably gonna load it from the core production systems like NetSuite or SAP, but also maybe from our e-commerce platforms, from our marketing automation platform, Marketo or HubSpot, from our digital advertising platforms, maybe uh, Google AdWords, Google Analytics, maybe from Zendesk to see how customer success and customer support interactions change how many pairs of jeans people buy, all that sort of stuff. So that what started off as a little bit complicated, pulling data from several places of SAP, joining it together and embellishing it and sorting out the quality, that becomes exponentially more complicated when you're doing it across multiple systems. The key takeaway here is that moving the data is actually pretty simple. And bear in mind, I make quite a lot of money from selling people software that allows them to move data, get data from SAP to Snowflake, get data from Marketo to Redshift. My software does that. I'm telling you that for the data professional, that's the easy bit. Actually, trade secret, from the ISV's point of view, it's not that difficult either. <laughs> Useful essential, but not that difficult for either me or the end user. But where the data professional spends their life is once they've got it there, once they've got it into the data warehouse in an ELT architecture, or once they've got it into the data integration platform in a pre-cloud ETL architecture, where they spend their life is joining that data together, embellishing it with metrics, sorting out quality, aggregation, granularity, and doing all of that at scale. And a different way of saying that is that they're innovating with data, they're adding business value and getting insight. And they do it in the data warehouse so that the end product, the end insight that drives business value is trusted and then can be consumed by tens or dozens of systems, thousands or tens of thousands of users. Does that all make sense? Yes. And I'd like to revisit the difference between ETL and and ELT briefly. Can can you just go a little bit deeper into why those acronym why that those acronyms have gone from ETL to ELT being the the more popular order of operations? Yeah, uh, definitely. To the end user, 
the process is pretty similar. And I think if we both do our jobs right as either an ETL vendor or a, a vendor whose technology uses an ELT architecture like mine, you know, the end user experience for the data professional shouldn't be that different, really. Ultimately, they don't want to care about the underlying architecture. They just want to get on with innovating with data and creating business value. But the, the acronym switch around, if you like, is important in the context of the cloud and cloud data warehouses. So back in the day, as we discussed earlier in the podcast, on-prem data warehouse, very expensive, high sunk costs. If you buy something for several million bucks and it takes ages to arrive, a couple of things happen. One is you use it carefully to make sure you get value out of it. And secondly, you stand a small army of ops people around it saying, don't touch this, it was expensive. Therefore, when you've got a team of data professionals kind of innovating with data and effectively doing development, right? They're doing development, but with data, it doesn't necessarily make sense to do that development directly on the data warehouse. When they want to join two tables together, they could do that in the data warehouse, but the data warehouse was expensive and it's busy serving the needs of the business user consuming their reports and analytics. But for that reason, previously, ETL architecture made a lot of sense. You did the transformation piece. You joined the data together, embellished the metrics, sorted out the quality and the granularity. You did all that on the ETL systems infrastructure. So you extracted from source, you translated the data into some kind of in-flight mediated state, a kind of Rosetta Stone state of data. You applied your transformation logic there, and then you translated it again into the destination format of data for your destination data warehouse. That means that all your translation computes, transformation computes, I'm sorry, is being done on your Informatica cluster, your Talent cluster, your data stage cluster. You need to do more transformation, you buy more Informatica data stage or Talent, but you don't buy more of your very expensive data warehouse. There is another benefit of ETL, and I don't do ETL, so this is me sort of trying to be authentic, pointing out the benefits of the two architectures. The other benefit of ETL is because the data is transformed in this intermediate Rosetta Stone state, you can then send it on to anywhere. And so if you're in an any-to-any environment where on a Monday you're taking data from SQL Server and pushing it to Oracle, and then on a Tuesday you're taking data from Salesforce and you're pushing it to Redshift, and then Thursday and Friday you're taking some old mainframe data and you're putting it into a MySQL database, then you need an any-to-any tool. And the only way of really doing that beautifully is ETL uh, because the transformation happens in one place, which is on the ETL tool infrastructure. Now, the thing that changed really was cloud data warehouses. As we talked about earlier, one of the big events there was the launch of Redshift in late 2012 because that made it very easy to stand up data warehouse compute power and storage, and also much cheaper. In ELT, we extract the data from source and we load it into the warehouse, and we then apply the transformations onto the warehouse. The engine doing the work of joining the data together is the data warehouse itself. And you can do ELT without any tools like mine, right? Load two tables onto Redshift or load two tables onto Snowflake, fire some SQL at it, create a view or create a new table based on a join. That's basically ELT. And on Redshift or Snowflake, that SQL statement will execute very fast because those platforms are very good at resolving that sort of query. 
So if you combine really great performance at that sort of thing with incredibly easy to stand up and pretty cheap, then what you get is is a brilliant target for doing ELT. So I think I think I understand. What you're saying is pre-cloud or more accurately pre the kind of hardware and processing we have available today, what you needed to do was take your data, put it into this system that would create the materialized views that you needed from your gigantic amount of data. And then you would get essentially the tables that you need. And the tables that you need would be what you would think of as the data warehouse. And that's what you would be accessing from uh, from a reading standpoint. And you couldn't really do complex queries against that data as much, or you couldn't have as rich of a query range that you could query against. And then something changed in the hardware or the underlying algorithms such that today, all we have to do is extract the raw data. We just have to figure out what data we want and throw it into the data warehouse. And then within the data warehouse, we can create the materialized views that we need and read from those. Yeah, that's pretty much right. I mean, I think something we always used to say a lot to Matillion and it's just a finessing on that playback you just gave, was that actually ELT was always a great idea. I mean, back in the day, you could run Informatica Power Center in an ELT mode over Teradata. It was great. It ran super fast, and it leveraged the ability of the underlying Teradata warehouse to crunch all this data in a very optimized way. It was brilliant. Just not many people did it because Teradata and Informatica were really expensive. So you'd run Informatica in ETL mode and have the work done on Informatica. That was slower. Or you'd run on a tool that wasn't Informatica, one of those other ETL tools. And again, it would run on its own infrastructure and be slower. And you just put the finished result into Teradata on a teaser or Vertica. So the thing that changed in the hardware, as you put it, is suddenly the whole world had access within a couple of clicks, a couple of minutes in the entry of their Amex card details to a brilliant target to do ELT on, which was a data warehouse. You know, you had like a Teradata-like capability, but just super easy to stand up and super cheap. At that point, it made sense to say, well, we're not going to do ETL anymore because it's a bit of a kind of computer science kludge and it's a bit slow and it has some problems with it in terms of development that slow us down. What we're going to do is move to an ELT mode because that barrier of cost has been taken out of the way and suddenly the world is awash with brilliant targets to do ELT over. The benefit, by the way, of doing ELT, I would say is twofold. One, it's about speed and perhaps as a byproduct of that management of infrastructure. Data warehouses are really fast at resolving analytical queries of the sorts that you need to make when you're doing ETL or ELT. So they just run real fast, right? Go figure. That's what they're designed to do. So your jobs run faster. And anyone that remembers looking after a data warehouse in the 90s will remember long batch jobs running overnight that occasionally failed at four o'clock in the morning. And the next day, all the reports went out wrong. If you make it faster... That just doesn't happen as often, and ELT is much faster. The other thing is you can do something at the development level with ELT that you just fundamentally can't and can never do in ETL. 
in Matillion, which I'm just using here as an example of what you can achieve with ELT, as you drag components onto the screen, so let's say you drag three tables of source data, one Salesforce, one SAP, one, I don't know, Google Analytics, and you start joining them together, you do a few calculations, you filter a bit, you change the granularity a bit, and then you send it out to a materialized table that you're going to put in Tableau at. Imagine a canvas with a Visio component for each of those steps. That's exactly what it looks like because Matillion's a code-optional graphical development environment. Each one of those tiles, as you build it out, you can look inside and live in real time, see what the data looks like because it's actually there on the data warehouse because you're in an ELT mode. In ETL, you can't do that. And that slows down the development process. The only way you can see where you're up to at each stage is running the job, piping stuff out to the console or another file, all that nasty stuff we sometimes have to do in development. And that, that just talks to speed of productivity and development, ultimately ability to innovate with data at pace. So yeah, that's why ELT is better. It was better prior to the public cloud. It was just preventatively expensive to do. Cloud comes along, cloud data warehouse comes along, and suddenly the world is awash with beautiful cloud data warehouses that make ideal targets for ELT and are really easy and cheap to stand up. That's what we took advantage of. All right. Well, we've very quickly gotten near the end of our time, and I had so many other questions I wanted to ask you. But I guess just to close off, we're in this time where the market of data warehouses is getting quite competitive. How are customer demands changing? Is the market shifting away from Redshift and towards Snowflake and BigQuery? Give me your condensed perspective for how the data warehouse market is changing. So we partner real closely with Redshift and Snowflake, and probably just out of uh, living one of Matillion's values, which is doing business with integrity. I'd probably not to like to talk in too much detail about what we've seen going on um, in terms of the shift. What what I will say is Snowflake has done an amazing job at building a real consequential company, you know, a, an outlier of a company based purely on this thesis of cloud data warehousing. And as a byproduct, and I'm forever grateful for the team at Snowflake, who I get on with really well for this, is they kind of re-signposted the industry to cloud data warehousing. So they branded Snowflake as the cloud data warehouse. And when they did that, it wasn't a term that was in vogue. It now is again, and that's down to that. They're both very significant actors in this industry. For BigQuery, I can't talk too quite as accurately. We have a, a small business line on BigQuery. My instinct says that in general, BigQuery is generally used more in MarTech use cases and other areas where GCP is normally resonant. Most of the big grown-up projects we see are either Redshift or Snowflake. We see a lot of both, but certainly Snowflake has done an amazing job. Bearing in mind, they launched their products, I think maybe four years after Redshift, something like that, and are now one of the, if not the player in cloud data warehousing. Matthew, thanks for coming on the show. It's been really great talking to you. And uh, if you ever want to come back on, discuss more details of data warehousing and ETL, I'll be happy to have you. Hey, it would be my pleasure. Thanks very much indeed for your time. And I'll speak to you next time. Cheers. Being on call is hard, but having the right tools for the job can make it easier. 
when you wake up in the middle of the night to troubleshoot the database, you should be able to have the database monitoring information right in front of you. When you're out to dinner and your phone buzzes because your entire application is down, you should be able to easily find out who pushed code most recently so that you can contact them and find out how to troubleshoot the issue. VictorOps is a collaborative incident response tool. VictorOps brings your monitoring data and your collaboration tools into one place so that you can fix issues more quickly and reduce the pain of on-call. Go to victorops.com slash sedaily and get a free t-shirt when you try out VictorOps. And it's not just any t-shirt, it's an on-call shirt. When you're on-call, your tools should make the experience as good as possible. And these tools include a comfortable t-shirt. If you visit victorops.com slash sedaily and try out VictorOps, you can get that comfortable t-shirt. VictorOps integrates with all of your services, Slack, Splunk, CloudWatch, Datadog, New Relic, and over time, VictorOps improves and delivers more value to you through machine learning. If you want to hear about how VictorOps works, you can listen to our episode with Chris Riley. VictorOps is a collaborative incident response tool, and you can learn more about it as well as get a free t-shirt when you check it out at victorops.com sedaily. Thanks for listening, and thanks to VictorOps for being a sponsor.